Tonight I want to explore a little bit further this theme of the healing power of mindfulness. See if I can uncover a little bit more understanding of why we call this a power, healing power, this mindfulness. And when I was reflecting on this today, what I wanted to bring forth, what kept coming was this uh, adage of, uh, that is quite popular about Buddhism, which goes like this, uh, just as a bird needs two wings to fly, so too does Buddhism need two wings. And those two wings are wisdom and compassion. And really, when we're exploring the healing power of mindfulness, we're really talking about wisdom and compassion. And when I reflected more on that, I realized this is a very big topic, a very vast topic that certainly will take more than five days to expound and to understand and certainly to have some kind of experience of. And the reason this has to do with wisdom and compassion is because mindfulness is what really uncovers the obstacles to the wisdom and compassion that already live within us. We believe through our habit patterns, our beliefs, our ideas, our views about things, that the world is quite different than it truly is. We don't see things very clearly. We don't, we don't often bring a lot of wisdom or consciousness. Sometimes we don't even bring very much compassion to ourselves and our life. And so the mindfulness, which really means, one translation of it is a, a remembering or returning. Really, mindfulness is really simply coming back, you know, remembering to come back to make contact with this present moment, to, to come, come back to, into connection with what's happening right now through the five senses and through the mind, through the thoughts. In fact, there really only are six experiences that we have to be mindful of. And I can remember uh, the first time I was in a Dharma talk with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, some years ago, And he said this in a Dharma talk. He said, there are only six experiences you have to be mindful of. The five senses, seeing, tasting, touching, hearing, smelling, and thoughts or images, the concepts that arise in the mind. That's all we have to be mindful of. And I I couldn't take it in. It seemed too simple, too simplistic. It couldn't be we could break down this incredibly complex reality into six experiences that we need to be mindful of. So I actually, when he ended the talk and he was leaving out the side door, this was in Yucca Valley, I remember remember it like it happened yesterday. He was going out the back door and I went out the front door and I caught him uh, when he was coming. I said, Joseph, did you really say that? You really said there are only six experiences? And he said, yeah, take a look. And so things really started to shift for me after that because it really made me think, well, gosh, it really is simple. You know, maybe, maybe not easy. We say it's simple, but not easy. But simple, you know, just when I'm seeing, see. When I'm hearing, hear. When I'm tasting, taste. Smelling, smell. 
feeling touch, touch, the touches, the sensations, or the feelings that run in the, the physical body, or the thoughts and images that arise in my mind. It's all I have to know, be mindful of. And so the mindfulness really is the coming back to our present experience of the mind and the body again and again and again. And as we do this, this is really what uncovers the wisdom. It begins to bring forth the wisdom, which really means just seeing things clearly. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom means we're, we're conscious, we're awake, we see things the way they are. It's also another translation of the word vipassana, which is our practice here, to see things clearly. So we begin to see things clearly, and as we see things clearly, the heart starts to open. We start to to come into contact with life as it actually is. And when we see that, when we're in touch with that, our heart moves, our heart is touched, because what do we come in contact with? Well, it's said what we come in contact with is the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That's what life is. Life isn't just one or the other. We don't get to a place where life, this, this world that we live in, this reality that we live in, is, is either all joy, is, it, it doesn't get to a point where it's all joyful. But as we start to see things more clearly and come in contact with life the way it is more fully and directly, we see it in its vast vision of truth. Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of pain, tremendous amount of pain in this world and it within our own mind and our own body. And yet there's a tremendous amount of beauty and there's a tremendous amount of, of joy and, and, and things to be happy about and the, and the potential for happiness within our own mind and our, our own consciousness. And so this is what gets evoked as we become more mindful. Mindful needs, means to be present in the here and now. We can only bring forth, we can only access wisdom and compassion in the here and now, in the present. Otherwise, where are we? We're just lost in the past, in our conceptual fabrications of the the past reality, or we're conceptualizing or fabricating some kind of future reality, neither one of them, which are actually here now. They may be here now only through our memory, only through the way we're fabricating, but where is it in actuality, in bare reality? Where is the past? Where is the future? It's only a fabrication. It's only our imagination, which we call forth through the through the thinking mind. But it, but what's here now? So as more and more through this mindfulness we we come into this present moment, what comes along with it is the wisdom and compassion. Wisdom, wisdom that sees the way things are, and the heart that can open to the way things are. With care, with a care and a, a kindness, uh, a well-wishing, a way that we're at, we're not afraid, we're not held back from life because we see what's true. We can move more fully into life with our wisdom, with our capacity, with our strength that we gain access to as we come more and more into the fullness of who we are. So this is really how I understand this this healing power of mindfulness. 
it's almost like the mindfulness is what what brings that brings access to the power we are the power is already here it's not like we 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 develop the power the strength the wisdom the compassion the fullness the capacity of who we are it's it's already here we just need to to pull back you know sometimes we say pull back the veil it's like the the veil of confusion you know, that, that doesn't allow us to see see things clearly. And so the more that we the more that we pull that back through with our mindfulness, we say, "Oh yeah, that's an obstacle." When I think these thoughts, when I think negatively about myself or other people, when I judge myself, when I criticize myself, when I'm not able to hold myself with kindness and care. This is an obstacle. It's an obstacle to really accessing more of my, my being, m- who I am. So this wisdom. Wisdom is a very important aspect of what we develop. We not even develop. It's what starts to be uncovered here. And with the mindfulness, what we begin to see into, and this is what we really mean when we're talking about wisdom in, uh, in, in Buddhist practice, is it's really the insight into what's called the three characteristics of existence. That's a kind of fancy way of saying it. But it's basically seeing into the truth of, of, of the impermanent nature of reality, or the anicca. Anicca is the, the Pali word. That there's nothing at all that is, is solid or static, but everything's in movement, everything's in flux, everything's impermanent. That means every mind state, every sensation, every emotion, every bit of our body is in constant uh, motion. Every, every bit of nature of reality is, in, is, in, is impermanent and transient. With the mindfulness, we can begin to see that directly in our meditation, in our practice. Does, has, does anything stay the same? I mean, where's that lunch you had today? You know, where's the warm sun that was out today? Where is the difficult mind state you had earlier? Maybe it's still here, maybe a little shade of it, but is it here in exactly the same way it was before? No. It's like it's the, the whole entire experience of this day has changed now. So we have insight into anicca. We have insight into what's called dukkha. Do you know dukkha? Dukkha. It's a great word. Dukkha, it's translated as, often translated as suffering. You know, big word in Buddhism, right? Suffering. We put a lot of emphasis on suffering. But really, dukkha, I think a, a better translation really is this unsatisfactoriness, kind of the unsatisfactoriness of of, of the way things are. And what that means is that because things are changing all the time, we can't really get things all lined up the way we want them to. We can't get our experiences to stay the same. We have a really nice, calm, easeful afternoon, and then all of a sudden it starts to change. We go, well, wait a minute, what did I do wrong? How do I get back there? As if there's something we can actually do in the moment to make that happen. But everything, our experience is reality, is very unstable because, because of the impermanent nature. Nothing is going to remain the same forever. And so we see things breaking up 
all the time. Mind states, emotions, our sensations in our body, uh, our, our, the situations in our life, our aging, sickness, people dying, death that's imminent, and all this breaking up, breaking up. So we constantly are faced with this truth, which we really know, but we try to pretend it's not true. You know, somehow we say, I really know that, but I can't really let that in because I've got to take care of my family or I've got work to do. Sort of, it's just a little too close to our heart to let the truth in of impermanence and that everything's breaking up, breaking up, breaking up moment to moment. We call this dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. It's unsatisfactory nature of reality. And the third is what's called anatta, which is the selfless nature of reality. And because everything's breaking up and everything's changing, what can we actually call ourself? What can I say? Can I say, this is who I am? Because every two minutes I'm changing. I'm a different person. If I'm relating to somebody, I relate differently. When I relate to the teachers, I become a different person. When I relate to the cooks, I'm a different person. When I'm in my room with my roommate, I'm a different person. Who am I? You know, all these, I mean, nothing we can't really say, this is me. We try to, we create these nice little uh, comfortable identities and say, this is me. But when we start to look at that more deeply, we can't really hold on to that either. Is that really, when we say, is this, tr- is this true? Is this truly who I am? That changes too. So we start to have the, the insight, wisdom into these, uh, uh, these characteristics of existence itself. And this helps us begin to let go. We let go. It's, when we see this more and more clearly, it's hard to hold on. It's hard to hold on to our pleasant experiences. It's hard to hold on to uh, trying to manipulate and, and, and create things to be a particular way, to control our realities, to match the way we want them to be. It's harder to do that because we know better. Kind of part of us knows better. So, so we can't hold on in the same way that we used to. This is the wisdom, the wisdom that starts coming through. And it's the mindfulness that sees, the mindfulness that sees the way we try to hold on, the way we try to control, the way we try to manipulate. The mindfulness can see that. Not only can it see that, but we can feel it. Because when we're holding on, we feel a kind of contraction. We feel a a tightening. You can, as you start to become more sensitive to what it actually feels like to hold on, that means to not see things very clearly and think that you actually can control reality in some way or possess things in a particular way, people or, or your uh, youth or your um, health or whatever it is. You start to feel this, we start to feel this more as a kind of an energetic, contracted feeling in our body itself, you know, the, the grasping, the holding, it's like this, it's like a tight fist. And when we hold, when we, when our fists are tight for a period of time, it starts to be painful. And, and what happens is the body is in this kind of contraction when we're in this 
this state where we want things to go a certain way. So we start to become sensitive. The mindfulness becomes sensitive to that, that holding pattern through the mind or through the body. We start to feel that more acutely. And as we know that, as we feel it, we can begin to release, let go. It's also, it's not like we necessarily let, let go. It's not like I let go. It's, it's more through the, through the knowing itself, through the understanding itself, <coughs> letting go happens. Why would I keep holding on and feel, you know, into this contracted, painful state when I know what I'm doing? It's like, okay, I could just relax. <laughs> and then through that understanding and that insight, there's the relaxation that happens. So we're trying to bring more understanding, more insight into the way that we're actually in relationship with reality, with ourselves, with our mind, with our body, with other people, with situations in our life. In any way that we're, we're holding on, any way we're clinging, this is going to bring some pain, some suffering. And this is what we're actually trying to heal. You know, when we talk about healing, healing really means to heal the mind of clinging. It's another kind of simple way of talking about it. When we talk about the healing power of mindfulness, we're really examining this clinging, this holding, this way that we don't want to let go of the to allow life to flow, nature to flow, reality to flow, just as it is. When we feel good in our meditation, what's happening? I mean, think about this for a moment. Reflect back to, hopefully you have had a period of meditation where it has been somewhat easeful for you, so kind of reflect back to a meditation that, has, that you've had in the last, uh, well, since you've arrived here. And just think, what made that meditation feel easeful? What made it feel, well, light or non-conflictual? What was that? What, how he spoke of this last night, too, when he said you, what's there, what we re- actually recognize what's there is the absence of the clinging, the absence of, the, of the, the wanting, the wanting to control, the absence of the aversion, which is the pushing away, the absence of the confusion that there's something that we need to do about our experience. That's what's happening. It's just that, that, that there, we're not in conflict with our experience. So there's no clinging, there's no grasping, there's no trying to manipulate, to alter. We're just, yeah, okay, it's okay. And it's not only when our experiences feel good. Generally, we, we know that when there's a pleasant kind of experience happening. But this, we can also experience the non-clinging mind, even when there's an unpleasant experience. Even when we have maybe a difficult mood, maybe we're feeling irritable, we're feeling grouchy, 
it's not so pleasant, we don't really like the way things are going. But when we take a look, we say, yeah, well, that's the way it is right now. You know, there's no real... We're not trying to make it different. We're not fighting ourselves. We're not judging ourselves. We're not criticizing ourselves. Well, I'm just irritable right now. I'm just grouchy right now. So we're not adding anything more on top of it. We're not feeding. We're not, we're not making our situation more complex and more, more unpleasant. We say we're being with things the way they are. I'm being with my experience just the way it is. So we're very interested in looking and being mindful of whatever we're putting on top of our experience through judgment or negativity or resistance or, or aversion pushing it away or, or wanting the old experience back. We're really examining, really looking at how do we do this? How do we do this? Because this is really what becomes the obstacle to accessing more of our heart, more of our, of our resources of wisdom. We really want to understand this. So this wisdom piece, we see the wisdom insight into these, these three characteristics which help us begin to let go. And as we let go, what, what we, what, not just as we let go, but while we're practicing the, the, uh, the insight practice, we're also really cultivating this compassionate heart, this kind, compassionate heart. So, so we talk about mindfulness, this kind of clear seeing of what's happening moment to moment, but we always have to add in this an extra piece of this a compassionate mindfulness, a, a kind attention, you know, which isn't always so obvious when we just talk about mindfulness. We want to also really encourage how, how are the ways that we're not being particularly kind when we see aspects of our mind, of our body. Can we, can we bring in more kindness? Can we bring in more compassion towards what we see? One of, one of our teachers here, uh, Tibetan Lama Tuku Ugin Rinpoche, said a beautiful uh, statement when he said, true compassion is like the summer's warmth that melts the ice. True compassion is like the summer's warmth that melts the ice. And the ice is really the way that we get fixated around this demanding, controlling, wanting, expecting things to go a particular way. That's kind of the ice. You know, we get, we get fixated around an idea and it's hard to let go. That's our expectations and our agendas and the way we want things to be. And as we bring more compassion to what we see, we see the pattern. We see the patterns operating in the mind. We go, oh yeah, there it is again. That's what I do. There's that very difficult pattern that keeps arising in my mind. And we can just see it for what it is and not get more judgmental, not get critical towards ourselves. We just see it. And that's the compassion. That's the compassion that we're bringing forth. And that's, there's, there's so much warmth in the compassion. I mean, it's a beautiful way to think about compassion as warm. Because you can, you can actually feel it that way. There's an energetic feeling in the heart where when the heart starts to open, we start to feel warm. 
We can feel like, it's almost like the sun comes out. You know, when the heart opens, it's like the sun starts to shine. And we feel that, the whole, the sense of the radiance of our heart. We talk about it in this way, but it's, it's actually this way for many people. And people have this experience. Two weeks ago, I was just up in uh, teaching a, a, a loving-kindness retreat for seven days in uh, Saskatchewan, Canada, for a group of people. And the whole seven days really was this emphasis on awakening the heart qualities, awakening the loving-kindness, which is called the metta, awakening the compassion, the joy, and the equanimity. And in Buddhist pra- Buddhism, these are the, called the four Brahma-viharas, or the four beautiful minds, the mind states, heart states. Brahma-vihara, the, Brahma means God, and vihara means home, house. So it's the home of the gods. So when our, when our heart opens in loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, we, we're at home, we're home with the gods. And it's very much like that. You know, this, this whole week, what we were doing is just repeating phrases, the loving-kindness phrases, may I be happy and peaceful, may I be uh, healthy and well, safe and protected, may I live with ease, may you be happy and peaceful, may you be healthy and well, may you be safe and protected, may you live with ease. And just repeating those phrases over and over and over again, really really seeing if we can contact this place within our own heart where we really care. We care about ourselves, we care about others, we care about the well-being of all beings everywhere. And as this week went on, you know, as we continue to, to send these blessings, and I really think of the metta as uh, 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 sending blessings out, like the Tibetan prayer flags, you know, that you hang in the wind and the the wind blows and the blessings just fly in the air. And it's the same, you know, with the metta phrases, as we say the metta phrases and wish well towards ourselves and towards others. Just these blessings, just, they just permeate, you know, the room and then out of the room to all beings. It becomes very palpable, very potent. And so this is a particular practice where we're attempting to, to awaken this, the qualities of the heart, these, these home, the home of the gods and the goddesses where that, that already is here. They're already here. And these beautiful practices that we do help us awaken, awaken. Isn't that a wonderful word? I love that word. I just loved saying it just now. You know, that just letting it roll off my lips. Awaken. You know, it's, so, it's such an uplifting word, you know, rather than sleep. <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, or, or what we have in the, in, in the hindrances, sloth and torpor, you know. One of, the, one of the things that most people experience, most of you experience the first few days of a retreat, a lot of sloth and torpor. And in the face of that, in the face of that sloth or that dullness or that, you know, we practice awakening. These awakening practices through the heart, through the mind, uplifting, 
so that there's so that we start to really know more and more the po- potential the possibility for us as human beings because we don't we don't really get a lot of messages in our culture how he was talking about last night you know we're, we we don't get a lot of these messages of how to come into our fullness the potential the full potential the full capacity of who we are as human beings and yet this is really the vision this is really the invitation for us as practitioners to come into our fullness and one of the one of the phrases i love uh, from the Buddha, which I hear myself saying a lot. You know, the Buddha, when the Buddha began to teach, and he was starting to give teachings, which you know, at, at you know, first appearance don't appear very simple and easy. But he was, he said, you know, if I did not think you could do this practice, I would not ask you to do it. If I didn't think that you could wake up, become a Buddha. I would not ask you to do it. And I think there's just such incredible confidence there in the truth, in, in, the, in what's possible for us as human beings, that each and every one of us can do this. We can awaken. We can awaken our wisdom and awaken our compassionate heart. And when we do that, it changes the world. It changes the world. First, it changes our own reality, completely shifts our entire reality as we wake up. And then the ripples go out. Like when you throw a stone in a pond and the ripples go out and touch every bit of the shore, everything changes. Everything shifts. Everything becomes into this this light of truth, of reality. So here on the retreat, you know, these first few days of a retreat, what is it that we encounter? I mean, it's everybody, whether we've been, you know, we're new at the practice or whether we've been practicing for a long time. The first thing we face is our thinking mind, our thinking mind, our conceptual mind, what we call the small conceptual mind you know, that really has its grip on us. And it's difficult. We spend a couple of days, you know, just seeing if we can get out from underneath the grip of our own mind. It's very tenacious, and we see that. And classically, the way that these five, there's, there's, there's difficult, these five difficult mind states that arise that the Buddha outlined that all practitioners, when they come into a retreat, they're going to encounter these five difficult mind states. And the five difficult mind states are the wanting mind, that grasping wanting mind, the opposite one of the aversive mind, the one that wants to push it away. It's the first, the wanting mind and the not wanting mind. The third one, the sleepiness and the, the, the sloth and torpor. The fourth one, which is the opposite energy, again, is the restlessness, a lot of too much energy. And then the fifth one is doubt, the self-doubt, 
we don't think we are really capable of doing this practice. How am I going to do this practice? Oh, it's so hard. I don't know. You know, this kind of very weighty, heavy kind of doubtful mind. And these are the, what's called the five difficult mind states that we need to work with and to overcome. And what we mean when we say overcome, what that basically means is, is to apply wisdom and compassion to these five difficult mind states. So what does that mean? What does it mean when we're having difficulty within our own mind, within our experience, what does it mean to bring wisdom and compassion? And I think this is really, this is a question, or I would say more of an investigation or an inquiry that I bring to most of my experiences. What does it mean for me to bring wisdom and compassion to what's happening right now? And I think that if I can remember that, if I can remember that, I'm already opening that door to my inner resources. I'm all, that's already a reflection of wisdom and compassion, isn't it? It's just that through the remembering to ask that question, to have some kind of reflection that right now I'm in a difficult state. You know, I've got a lot of wanting in my mind or I've got a lot of aversion. I'm really a lot of negativity, a lot of, you know, judgment and, uh, or I've got a lot of doubt or I'm very, very sleepy or I'm so restless. And sometimes they're all there together, right? We call them a multiple hindrance attack. You know, you're just getting it from every angle, you know. If there's some aspect of consciousness we call mindfulness, which can actually look and see what's happening, that means you're already stepped out of it. There's just one centimeter is stepped out when you say, wow, look at that. That's, that's the mindfulness. You're already awake. You're already present. You're already consciousness, conscious. Say, wow, look at that. That's the, that's the, you're opening the door right there to the wisdom and compassion. That's it. That's all it takes. That's the, the first crack of letting the light in opening that door into the dark room, and the light comes in and say, wow, look at that. So the first step really is the acknowledgement. It's just the saying, this is what's happening. I'm having a multiple hindrance attack, you know, whatever it is. I'm having, you know, I'm really giving myself a really hard time, or, you know, I'm really caught in craving. I just have to have some... I shouldn't say the word. As soon as I say the word, you're going to start thinking it, right? (laughs) So I almost don't even want to plant any seed of what you might be wanting. (laughs) (laughs) You can figure it out. You know, you can can fill in the blank of your own craving. Um, Because, you know, we can get really caught and it can feel like the only thing that's going to make the day okay. Or, or, or whatever it is, you know, or these, these terrible, you know, self-doubt attacks. Or when we are so tired that we can't even lift our body up, you know, or lift our head up, you know. 
it's like the first opening the door is like, ah, you're really tired or you're really craving that, you know, or just something that can recognize what's happening. That's the light. We just want to bring that on. And then from there, we bring in whatever tools that we have, whatever resources that we have to help us to let go. Let go of negativity. What we're, when I say let go, what I'm meaning is letting go of the resistance to what's happening, letting go of the expecting something else to be happening, and to open to the way it is. I'm tired right now. It's very hard for me to even open my eyes, to lift up my head. Wow, isn't that amazing? That's it. What else can we do? And then we just see if we can bring some continuity to that wakeful attention. So, so for me, the practice becomes very simple in this way. You know, I just really want to look at the ways that I am either resisting what's happening or expecting or wanting it to change in some way, to go back to the way it was or have, you know, match my ideals or my expectations, my agenda of how I want things to be. And to just breathe and relax. This is the way it is. And then to know, too, through the insight into the wisdom that everything changes. This isn't going to last forever. You know, that we, that's a common uh, uh, piece of wisdom, you know. It'll change. Don't get too caught up and it'll change. Everything passes. You know, so we so hold that. We hold that piece of wisdom. Everything's, everything's unstable. And it's not really mine anyhow. I didn't invite this. I didn't ask for this to come. You know? the, Buddha, the Buddha has this um, refrain so many times in his um, discourses where he has us, asks us, invites us to reflect on this. Um, he says, this is not me. This I am not. This is not myself. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. This insight, you know, when the difficult mind states come, the, the moods, the irritation, the, the uh, uh, agitation, the fear, the, um, even, even we have to turn it around, even the joy and the happiness and the calm, and this is not me, this is not myself. These, this is really the landscape of my mind. One yogi said, this is now, this, it, she, was, she had the insight and she brought it forth. She said, it's the climate, it's like the weather. I see now it's just like the weather. Sometimes it's foggy, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's warm. Just the climate of my mind. You know? This is the wisdom and the compassion. Because the compassion isn't fighting isn't in, in struggle, in conflict, in, uh, in expectation and in, in demand. It's just the climate right now. And as we do that, there's the potential to feel a whole energetic shift, which is the healing. It's the healing, because we, we're not caught in the contraction, in the tightness, in the resistance, in the fear. It's the healing, the letting go. 
We're not in conflict with reality, what's showing itself at the moment. So the practice really is this learning how to be open to all experience, moment to moment to moment, to to have an open-hearted, open-handed, rather than clutched, relationship to our experience as it comes and goes. I love this uh, poem from Rumi. goes like this, if God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, Ruby realizes that there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. And so we're attempting to shift our view, shift our relationship to the way things are. And that shift means letting go of the clinging. The healing is this is the mind of non-clinging, which allows for the resources of our being to come forth, to, to radiate out of this magnificent being that we already are. It's like that polishing the, um, the, the, the pearl, the pearl in the oyster that gets polished with the sand you know, and it just gets shinier and shinier and shinier, more radiant. The same is happening for us with this mindful attention to all aspects of our experience. We just get shinier and shinier and shinier, more radiant with the, the wisdom and the compassion. So... I want to end with this one um, short story um, from the uh, Tibetan tradition, the Kagyu tradition, um, about Milarepa. Uh, Milarepa was a great, great yogi, and there's many stories about Milarepa from the ancient times, and it goes like this. Milarepa had been in a place of great joy, His mind was blissful as he carried some wood back up to his cave. When he arrived there, he found inside his cave seven demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding sampa, and some sat performing various magical tricks. As soon as Mila saw them, he became frightened. He meditated on his deity, uttered his mantra, performed a gaze, and aroused the deity's presence. Those are the Tibetan practices to try to remove the demons. He then meditated on compassion and friendliness, but was still unable to pacify them and make them go away. He thought, these might be the local spirits of this place. 
Although I have been here for months and even years, I have not praised them or given them any gifts. So he made them an offering and he sang them a song. You who have, who have assembled here are magical obstacles. Drink this Amrita, this drink of friendliness, and be gone. Three of the demons who were performing magic went away, but Mila was still unable to make the other four go away. So he roused another song of confidence. It is wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. As he summoned this confidence and openness, three more of the demons vanished like a rainbow. But the one remaining demon performed an imposing dance, and Mila thought, this one is vicious and very powerful. Overcoming all resistance, he drew in even closer, and he said, Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk out our differences. Ah, I feel compassion for this spirit. And without concern for himself, Mila placed himself in the mouth of the demon, at which point the last demon vanished like a rainbow. So I leave that for you to reflect on, because I think it really speaks to the wisdom and the compassion that are needed for our healing not just here on our retreat, but for our life and for all life, all beings on this earth and in all the universes. May all beings be healed. Let's sit for just a minute. This talk was given by Sharda Rajel at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 25, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.